the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a new week. It is the Monday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions. Anything and everything that's on your heart and mind, we'll do the best that we can. The best thing for you to do is to call us with your questions. You can do that by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 6 You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, we want you to be safe. Use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Lots going on. Uh, Yesterday, as many of you knew, uh, was our annual baptism at the river. Uh, There was barely enough water in the river to do it. We found one spot where we could get deep enough to put people down. But really, we had a great day. There were lots and lots of people out there, lots of food and fellowship. Uh, We baptized a lot of people, but the, the, the always a great thing for me is that there were two friends there of people getting baptized, listening to the testimonies. People were talking to them and sharing them throughout. And two men, um, both of them decided um, while they're watching people get baptized that they wanted to be Christians. Uh, that always happens at the baptisms, and what a great, great time. One of the young men, especially, his name was Joshua, and he won't be listening to the show today, so uh, this won't embarrass him. But um, we had this big picture, a, a group picture, when uh, we were all done. We take pictures of everybody as they're getting baptized, and and um, the, the guy who's been doing this for us for years from the church uh, works very hard to get everybody their pictures right away. Um, and he wanted one big group picture, so we all got on the on the side. And Paul and I were standing there together. And this young man named Joshua, who got baptized, he was the last one to get baptized. Walked in, gave his life to Jesus. He was absolutely beaming. And he kind of butted in the picture, and he got right between me and Paul. And he goes, I want to feel like I belong to something, he said. And Paul and I, at the same time, we said, well, now you do. And uh, that, that's what happens. I just love a simple act of obedience. God says to get baptized, people get baptized, and then other people get saved. That was sort of like the book of Acts. It was really, really great. So thank you very much for your prayers. Uh, another thing, um, I, I got to meet several of you from the radio audience uh, out at the baptism. Thank you so much for coming. hope you fell in love with our people. Uh, we fell in love with you. Uh, thank you very, very much for taking the time to come out and introduce yourselves uh, to Paula and to me. Uh, also, because it's Monday, ladies, tonight is our next installment of the Sweet Summer Devotion Series for the summer. Tonight, Vicki Miller will be sharing 
uh, Paul and I were talking today, and Vicky uh, has been around uh, her family and and uh, Vicky. Um, they've been around our church for probably 21 of our 23 years. Um, we've watched her children grow up. We've watched now her grandchildren growing up. And uh, Vicky's always been really quiet. She's been really, really faithful. And I can't wait to hear what she has to say. God has really, really um, sort of won a big victory in Vicky's life uh, with all the things that have happened to her. Uh, the one thing I know for sure is this will be a story about God's faithfulness and, and how God overcomes difficult circumstances. So uh, Vicki Miller tonight uh, at 7 o'clock we have child care and of course uh, you can bring your whole families because the men have their own Bible study with Pastor Ken um, the junior high age kids with Chris Sanchez and then our high school age kids with Pastor Nelly uh, they will all have their own Bible studies and we have child care available for uh, any of the kids who are younger than junior high school so feel free to come and enjoy as family we worship together and then everybody kind of goes their own direction so that's tonight at Calvary Chapel at 7 o'clock let me get to some questions because we have some really, really difficult ones. Here is a question from our mobile app. This one is from Nervous. Uh, Nervous says, does the Bible teach soul sleep at all? What assurance do we have that upon dying we enter into God's presence? Well, Nervous, you don't have to be nervous at all. The Bible does not teach soul sleep. When it says uh, that they went to sleep, that's a euphemism for death. Jesus makes that really, really clear in the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Lazarus is sick. Word gets to Jesus and his disciples. And um, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, Jesus waited for four days. And uh, finally he said to his disciples that uh, Lazarus is asleep. And uh, the disciples, not thinking, said, well, well, Lord, if he's asleep, that means he's getting well. He'll get better. And Jesus uh, says, the Bible makes it clear, by this he spoke of his death. So sleep was just a euphemism. Now, the assurances that we have, nervous, are in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says that uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23 says, Paul speaking of his own experience, says, I'm torn between the two, living and dying. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Uh, So when we leave this earth, we instantly go into the presence of the Lord. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. The, the minute, the instant, the nanosecond that we leave, uh, our spirit leaves these bodies nervous, we are in the presence of Jesus where we've always dreamed to be what Peter calls receiving the goal of our salvation. So you don't have to be nervous anymore. I hope that really, really helps. The the uh, verse reference, by the way, for Second Corinthians chapter 5 is chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says, we're content and I say would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. No soul sleep, no um, worries at all about going into a vast nothingness. All we have to do is Rejoice in his presence. So nervous, I hope that makes you feel much better. Believe what the word says. Don't believe what you read on the internet. Don't believe what somebody wants to claim to you. Oh, no, there's soul slip. Don't believe the Jehovah's Witness who comes knocking on your door. It's simply not true. The word of God is our authority. 340-9585. Here is our next question. This one from our email inbox from Nacho. Uh, Nacho says, in regards to your sermon yesterday in Luke 4, regarding verse 17, was the scroll of Isaiah the prophet handed to Jesus randomly or by custom, or did Jesus himself choose the scroll he wanted to read from? If it was random, that would have added to the impact of what was proclaimed that day. Um, Nacho, I, I personally don't think there's anything that is random. 
Um, Jesus is the Lord of all creation, even though he was in the flesh. And um, this is what his father wanted, and God sovereignly working behind the screen, uh, behind the scenes, made sure that that was the passage of scripture. So Jesus chose it. Now the scroll, of course, would be very, very wide. So he had to look through the scroll to find the very place where Isaiah sixty-one would be written. So Jesus chose the passage of scripture from the scroll. The scroll was handed to him. It may have been the the rabbi of the synagogue who who grabbed it and handed it. But believe me, his hand was being directed by God himself. So nothing happens by random. That doesn't mean that we should get caught up in all little mysticisms, the little things that God does or the things that we want him to do. Oh, what we should do is trust him the way Jesus did. Whatever scroll was handed to him, Jesus knew would have been the right one. So, good question. Thank you very much. Had a good message. I like that message in Luke chapter 4 from yesterday. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Caleb. He says, in Matthew 1, 11, the genealogy of Jesus, Jeconiah is mentioned. Did not Jer- Pro- Jeremiah prophesy that none of his descendants would be a part of the lineage of David, specifically in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30? Now, for sure, um, none of his descendants would be a part of the lineage. Um, however, This is Joseph's genealogy. Joseph was not Jesus' father. And and this man named Jeconiah, he's also called Caniah. God cursed him, stating that no descendant of his would ever sit on the throne of David. Um, But Jesus, of course, is going to sit on that throne in the heavenly kingdom. The point is is that uh, that's being made is that Jesus is not a biological descendant of Jeconiah at all. But he came, Jesus did, through the other lineage of Mary. So the prophetic curse upon Jeconiah stands um, to this very day. The legal adoption of Jesus by Joseph reckoned the legal rights of Joseph to Jesus as a son, but not a biological son, so the curse was not voided. That's why we need two genealogies, by the way, one from Matthew and one from Luke, one from Mary. Um, that's the actual uh, biological line according to the prophecy, and then the one through Joseph. So I hope that answers your question. Here is a heartbreaking question. We'd love your calls, by the way, and after this question, I think we're all going to need it. Let me get to it. Here is an email from an anonymous woman. Um, Job chapter 42 speaks of the blessings bestowed upon Job after his time of testing. Among the list of those blessings are the children born to him, among whom it lists three daughters who are the most beautiful in the land. That's from chapter 42, verse 15. Um, The writer of Job obviously connected the dots in that passage between God's blessing and beauty. She also noted that all the matriarchs were exceptionally beautiful women, a fact I cannot deny. So here's my question. What's an ugly woman to think? I know Jesus loves me unconditionally. I'm fully acceptable to him, thanks to his finished work on the cross and the work of his spirit. But I'm gross to other men. Why does God make ugly women? If he knows that we will not be chosen for marriage and assign value and worth as wives, why does he make us? I have a desire to be loved and married, even though I'm ugly. Now, perhaps you hear self-pity in these statements. But this is a question that I need a response to. What would you say to someone like me? Anonymous, my heart really, really hurts for you. Um, I I could spend an hour, and if we had that time in counseling, I would do that very thing. 
But there's a couple of things. And let me start with some misperceptions that you have. Um, the blessing of Job isn't connected to the beauty, in this case, of his daughters. The writer of Job is simply acknowledging that they were beautiful, just reporting the facts. So it's not like, well, Job lost everything and God restored everything and in spite of all the pain, uh, God gave him three extraordinarily beautiful girls. Uh, That was just the writer. It's very, very important. When you say all the matriarchs were exceptionally beautiful women, um, uh, that's an overstatement. That's that's an exaggeration of the facts. Um, Some of them were. And God goes out of his way in his word to mention some who were beautiful, others who were very beautiful, again, just reporting the facts. Some of those reports are germane to the story. I'll give an example. Abraham trying to give Sarah away twice. She was a very beautiful woman. And he was concerned because of her beauty that the enemy kings would come and try to take her from him and kill him. So that's germane to the story. It's very important. I also think we have to remember the tension between the books of the Bible being written by God. We know that God is pushing the pins of men. But there's a dynamic in the two extremes here that would suggest that it was also written by men and men are going to emphasize the beauty of the women that catch their attention. It's that simple. So don't overread into the passage of Scripture. Now, what I really want to do now is deal with the rest of it. I think what you need to hear, what you're looking for, perhaps, is hope. God has put this desire in your heart to be married. If you will follow Jesus, if you'll try your best not to go out and do things on your own to find the man, God will bring you the one that he's preparing for you. The desire to be married is a desire that's God put in your heart. It's a desire he wants to fulfill. I'm sure this isn't the case with you. I'm not sure, but I wouldn't suspect that it is. But too often when we're lonely, we try to take matters into our own hands. We'll go online, we'll go to bars and things like that, trying to find somebody in our own strength. All you have to do, Anonymous, is to, to follow Jesus every day. And as you follow Jesus every day, one of those days he will lead you right to the place where the man that he's prepared for you is waiting. That's how important this is for you to understand. I also think that you need to understand what true beauty really looks like. From God's point of view, we're told that God doesn't see men or women as other people do based on an outward appearance, but God sees your beauty. Of Sarah, it said the unfading beauty of a godly woman, the inner beauty. It's important you understand that. Uh, I'm not good-looking myself. But Jesus does love me. And I ran into a beautiful girl and fell in love, and we've been together for 48 years. See, God's looking at your heart. He's preparing you for the man that he's preparing for you. And you need to trust that. When you ask, why did God make you, if you're going to be ugly, if you're not going to be married, God didn't make you. God created the process that made you. But how we look, even the way we think and the things that we do are a function of DNA. It's a function of a man meeting a woman and then all of the ancestors between them 
coming together and producing offspring. Paula sent me a picture of our granddaughter, Ileana, and she gets this big smile on her face, and all I could see was my son, Ronnie. I'm talking identical. They just absolutely are identical. And that picture of Ileana smiling, I had that picture of my own son many places in my house. Just identical. Why? That's what DNA does. Bible study on Wednesday this week in Second Samuel. We're going to finish chapter 14, maybe get into chapter 15. It starts off noting what a handsome man Absalom was. The women would be falling all over him, but remember, David was handsome. Absalom's mother was beautiful. And they produced a beautiful child. And in his case, his pride over being so handsome, his pride, especially in this thick head of hair that he had, would end up killing him. So we're a function of our DNA. You know, if I took this to its logical extreme, anonymous, I'd say, well, when, what would we say to somebody who's born with a physical disability? Or what would we say to somebody who's born with an abnormality that people won't even look at? Or are, are we to suggest that God's not being fair to them? Or is that a result of living in a fallen world? These are really important things because I can promise you Jesus does love you unconditionally. That's your term. And you are accepted in the Beloved. He thinks you're absolutely beautiful. All perfect you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. He says that to you in the Song of Songs. You have to believe it. Now, I'm not talking about being in denial. You know, I wish I was six feet tall. I'm not. I'm vertically challenged. But that doesn't mean God loves me. It means my dad was short. My mom was short. And we have to understand that. Would you prefer that God wouldn't have allowed you to be born? I mean, think about it. You're going to be in heaven forever. You get to walk with Jesus every day. This is one of those things where you're focused, anonymous, on things that don't really matter. Again, I'm not suggesting that they don't matter to you or they don't matter to some people in the world, but I'm strongly suggesting they don't matter to God. What matters to God is your beauty as a bride of Christ. And that's how he wants you to see yourself. I never go around saying, you know, I really, I'm feeling six foot two today. I never do that. That would be foolish. But you know what? I'm perfect. I'm going to give you some advice somebody gave me one time when I was, when I make fun of people, Bible studies that the illustration makes fun, I always make fun of myself. In this one study, I was talking about how short I am, always wanted to be tall, that kind of thing. And at the end of the message, a lady came up to me with tears streaming down her cheeks, and she said, Pastor Ron, don't feel bad about being short. God made you perfect. He made you the way you are for a particular reason. Well, Anonymous, that's what I want to say to you. God chose your parents. God chose their parents. And every time he looks at you, he says, beautiful, how beautiful you are. And he's asking you to believe it. Let me suggest another thing. Standards of beauty have changed so much throughout history. There was a time when what we consider beautiful. And the Song of Songs is another example of this principle as well. The woman that Solomon fell in love with at first look 
was what we would call a beautiful girl. She was lean. She was fit. She was tan from working in the sun. But she considered herself ugly. The culture that she lived in considered herself ugly. In that culture, women's beauty was judged primarily by three things. One, they needed to be big-hipped. Why big-hipped? Because they could bear children. That was a sign of God's blessing. That means they were, we would say, chubby. Third, beauty was judged by the whiteness of skin. Noble women would take bleaching treatments sometimes hours after hour after hour per day to bleach their skin white. Now we put on suntan lotion, go to the beach, and try to get dark. So standards of beauty change over and over. So let your standard of beauty be the one assigned to you by God. He does love you unconditionally. Please never, ever forget that. God's got somebody waiting for you. We have 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love your live calls. We will be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our final 30 minutes today 340-9585 we had a caller into the station i guess i was talking too long i didn't notice she couldn't stay on the line but here was her question i've had six people tell me they have heard trumpets blowing in the skies have you heard of anyone saying that they're that they heard trumpets is this the treaty signed by russia and the u.s the peace treaty referred to in the bible uh call her a couple of things um don't listen to people tell you they hear things it's that simple when the trumpet blows, and it's not going to be a literal trumpet, it's going to be Jesus' voice saying, come up in an instant. The trumpet is an allegory. It's a metaphor for the trumpet call to be ready. So when that comes, it will be a trumpet call that Jesus will declare only to his people, and everyone who belongs to him is going to hear it. Everyone. Now, what happens is you get these people who've been reading too much on the Internet and they've heard about these things. Um, it's like UFOs and other things. And, and, and the enemies can try to use this to discourage you or to frighten you. So, no, I haven't heard of anyone saying that they heard trumpets. There is no treaty signed by Russia and the United States. I don't know if you're referring to the sit-down that our president had with uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, today that uh, the news media is all in an uproar over. But there is no trumpet. When it happens, it will be so instant, the trumpet will blow and we'll be out of here. Now, I'm really hoping and praying that happens today. Probably isn't going to happen today, but that's the deepest part of my prayer. So don't worry about what people say. Don't worry about conspiracy theories. Uh, stay away from the sensational. If you want sensational, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51. Or turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And let Jesus calm your heart. So, no trumpets out there. That's not the way it's going to happen in the last days. Just follow Jesus today. Thank you for calling. I appreciate you listening. Here is a question anonymously. Do you think God gets mad at us when we miss church? Anonymous, if you think God gets mad at you if you miss church, you don't know him. I mean, you may be saved. I'm not doubting that you're saved. But no, he doesn't get mad, and he doesn't want us to do guilt. Now, does he want us to go to church? Of course he does. One of the messages or points in the message I made yesterday in in my uh, study in Luke chapter 4 was that Jesus, as was his custom, went into the synagogue. 
we should go to church sometimes in the Bible. Worship is called a sacrifice of praise. People say, well, tired, I don't feel like it. I've got other things that I want to do. None of that matters. We make sacrifices for the one who sacrificed everything for us. So he doesn't get angry. He's not disappointed. But I think sometimes, remember, Jesus is human still. He's also God, but he's human. Um, I think the human part of Jesus is just sort of sad. Why would you choose to do something besides go to church? He doesn't want us to miss out on anything. Anonymous in my Bible study yesterday, the people in Jesus' hometown, because they were too familiar with him, simply refused to believe that little Jesus that we saw grow up He's claiming to be the Christ. They refuse to believe. They tried to kick him out of town. In fact, they tried to throw him off a cliff. And yet Jesus just walked by them and was undisturbed. I told my church yesterday, I'll tell everybody in this listening audience, the worst thing that could happen is if Jesus is walking in our midst and we don't notice him. Please be with Jesus. Do what he tells you to do. Do it for his glory. Do it because he sacrificed first for you. And then what's going to happen when you get to church is you're going to find a whole bunch of blessing. So no, he doesn't get mad. Don't do guilt. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 says... Whenever you're doing guilt or you're feeling condemned, that's an enemy. It's not God. We need a different perspective on who Jesus is. We should have all the perspective we need just by virtue of the fact that he loves us and he died for our sins. Here is a question from Victor. Pastor Ron, can a pastor be restored after committing adultery? Um, Victor, there's a lot of difference of opinion on this. I'll, I'll just tell you what I believe, and I believe this very, very strongly. Um, a pastor is to be above reproach, and I think when a pastor has crossed that line and has cheated on his wife, has broken his marriage vows, uh, I believe that he is disqualified from pastoral ministry uh, for the rest of his life. That doesn't mean he he's, can't be restored to God. It doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of other wonderful uses of the gifts that this pastor or preacher might have. But when we take advantage of our position, especially if we commit adultery with somebody who's in our church, we have violated God's trust to such a degree that I don't believe that man should ever pastor again. Now people will say, and they have said when I've answered this question before, what about David? He said with Bathsheba, God restored him. David was not a pastor. David didn't have a New Testament. David didn't have the Holy Spirit living in him. It's not even an analogous story. Well, what about God's gifts and calling are irrevocable? Yeah, but we can forfeit our right to those gifts and callings. God didn't revoke a calling if a pastor cheated on his wife. The pastor trampled on it. Again, we can be restored and we can be used, but there are some violations that I think permanently disqualify us. If I cheated on Paula, if she didn't kill me, our marriage could be restored. Promise she wouldn't be married to Pastor Ron anymore. She'd just be married to Ron. And you know, Victor, that's something I don't think we think about much. The pastor that cheats to satisfy his lust, the pastor that cheats is also causing his wife to forfeit the light that God has chosen her for. What would Paula do if she wasn't pastor's wife here? We have a church 
filled with all of these people call her Mama Paula. These are her kids. So if I thought about cheating on her, I'd have to think about changing her life forever. Because the minute I have to step away, I'm no longer passed her on. I'd like to think that Paula would forgive me. I'd like to think that I know that God would restore my relationship with him because that's a promise we have in the word. But imagine what it would be like for me. I get up every Sunday morning and take a walk with Jesus. We talk about the study. We talk about the people who are coming. We talk about what a privilege it is to do what we do together. Imagine the first Sunday morning when I couldn't do that. So, Victor, I think not. I will say in fairness that there are lots of diversity in the opinion about this matter. And there are some pastors who are serving I won't use the word faithfully, but they are serving after having been caught in one or even more adulterous relationships. I think it's sad that holiness doesn't matter that much in our church culture anymore. Hope that answers your question, Victor. Thank you very, very much. We'd love to have your calls. Phones are quiet to start this week. 340-9585. That's 210-340-9585. Um, Vince wants to know, uh, if everything in heaven is good, how could Satan have sinned? Vince, I have no idea. I have no idea how he could have sinned, why he would have wanted to sin. I have no idea why being in the presence of God, and in his case as Lucifer, being God's most beautiful creation, how he could even consider sinning. I think what you're asking is where did sin come from if there's no sin in heaven? Well, here's the thing we have to understand. Every created being, now there are two types of created beings as it relates to heaven or hell. That's angels and humans. And every single being in those two groups, has to make a choice who they're going to serve. Now, for the angels, Vince, the choice was a once-forever choice. Jesus said, too much is given, much is required. The idea there is much more required. And the angels who had seen God face-to-face, the angels who were in his presence and worshipped him, crying, holy, 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 those who knew nothing but of heaven in the presence of God, Their fall was so severe when Lucifer tricked them and a third of the angels in heaven fell. They were so accountable that they didn't get another chance. The fallen angels, Jesus encounters them all throughout the Gospels, demons, and he casts them out. He rebukes them and exercises authority over them. But there's no second chance for them. For us, thankfully, it's different. We can have as many second chances as are available in the time that we're alive. So we're flesh and blood. We haven't been in the presence of God directly, like angels have. And so God's standard is slightly different between us and angels. They have only one choice. They made it, and their fate is sealed. But Vince, if somebody you know has blasphemed God, said, I don't want anything to do with God, tomorrow they can wake up and change it all by saying, I'm sorry. I love that about our Jesus. Forgiveness. Here is a question from Ronald. Ronald says, I have a co-worker who says he is a free thinker. What is a free thinker? Well, Ronald, a free thinker is a moron. A fool says in his heart there is no God. A free thinker is one who says, I'll only believe in what I can see. I'll only believe on what my, my mind can reason and, and make sense of. If I can see it, if I can touch it, if I can prove it, 
then I'll believe it. And they call themselves free thinkers. The problem is they're not really free at all. Paul says in Romans that we're slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. But we're all slaves to something. So a free thinker is simply somebody bound by an enemy. It doesn't matter that he or she doesn't believe in that enemy. Free thinkers are often very motivated. You'll see them write letters to the editor of newspapers because they want to remove any and all mention of God. They just think the idea of a, of a, of a uh, all-powerful God is fairy tale silliness because you can't prove it. Sometimes scientists are proud to be known as free thinkers because they only believe what I can prove. But basically these are, we would call them atheists, and again, I say what the Bible says, a moron says in his heart, there is no God. That's what the Hebrew word for um, means uh, when it says that uh, um, someone doesn't believe in God. Imagine that. You look at the eastern sky and there he is every day. Same place, same time. Sunsets in the same place in the West every day. The same seasons come and they go when they come and they go. The design is overwhelming. A fool says in his heart there is no God. But Ronald, they are not free at all. Here's a question from Leslie. Uh, good question, by the way, Leslie. Uh, since God knows everything, why does he test us as he already knows what the outcome is going to be? Well, Leslie, he tests us for us. He tests us for us. He knows what the outcome is going to be, but we don't. First Corinthians 4.2 says that uh, uh, every man, and I add woman always, given a trust by God must prove faithful. And so we don't prove faithful if things are easy and just we're kind of breezing by. We prove faithful by passing the test. You know, we have a school here at Calvary Chapel, and we don't take a kid just because he or she's nice. We know their family, and so we're going to promote them from first grade to second grade unless they pass the tests. Wouldn't be loving to just pass them social promotion we have tests to take well in the same way we have tests Abraham's test with Isaac God knew what he was going to do he knew he was never going to ask Abraham to kill his son but he let Abraham think he was because Abraham had to decide who he loved more Isaac or God so we have these tests that prove that we really believe and that we trust him. At the end of the test, here's the great thing, Leslie. At the end of the test, we know we've pleased God. We know we've pleased the Lord. So you're right, God knows everything, but we don't, so he tests us. Let's go to Ray on line one. Ray, thanks for being our first caller today. You're on the air. And it's kind of late in the afternoon on your on your your program however being the first is pretty good (laughs) (laughs) cool thank you um uh i was thinking after that call about the uh young lady or i don't know how old she was but the the one that uh you know thinking why would god make ugly and you know you made a great explanation on that and then you had followed up later on about you and Paula had been together 40 umpteen years, et cetera. And, and I, I was, it crossed my mind as to when God had made, excuse me, Adam, and uh, Adam was naming the animals. And, and I, I was just musing whether this is possible or what you thought about it, that when he was naming the animals, it was setting him up to be led in the direction of when he lost the rib and Eve was born, that he would be, uh, you know, just more than happy to to uh, have that relationship. And if you think that's 
where we got that desire to, you know, that it wasn't good to be alone. So I'll, I'm going to hang up and listen. Is that clear enough? That's clear, Ray. Thank you very much. You know, uh, Miss Nomer, let me clear this up first. Adam didn't lose his rib. Woman was taken out of his side. That's a very important distinction to make. But you see, what God was doing there was creating a, a desire in Adam to fulfill a need that Adam didn't know existed. I mean, the only thing we know about Adam is that he walked in the cool of the garden with God, that he was perfect, that the creation was pristine. There would be no thought that there was anything lacking. He had no knowledge that he was missing out on anything. And that's why God said, this is what I'll do. I'll create in him a knowledge to know that it's not good to be alone. So he brought animals two by two, male and female, male and female, over and over and over. And finally, Adam started to get the idea, hey, everybody's got somebody but me. And in the process, God created in him a desire not to be alone. There was an elephant and Mrs. Elephant and there was a hippo and Mrs. Hippo, but there's no Mrs. Adam. And that's when God put him to sleep. And when he woke up, there she was in all of her beauty, in all of God's unfallen glory. There she was. And that was the work of God, something Adam never would have known about had God himself not created the desire. So the lady who wrote in and and others who want to be married, God puts that desire in our hearts. What we've got to do is fulfill it. So Ray, thank you very much. Let me say one other thing and then we'll get to Jose. Um, We're starting to run out of time here. Um, All of us need to do the best we can to dress up what we have. I think it's really important. We need to be physically fit as much as it's possible. We need to look good. We need to feel pretty if you're a woman. We, we need to do the best that we can with what we've got. Follow Jesus and God will take care of the rest. Let's go to Jose calling from San Antonio. Jose, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Jose. Uh, I'll talk to you again. I, I, I talked to you before already. Uh, I just you. love the, the way you preach. <laughs> Thank you, Jose. Um, I'm, I'm here. Uh, I've been reading uh, in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 11. And I know it's Jesus talking because all the words are in red. But uh, I'm reading Matthew eleven seventeen. Uh, I don't know if you got it in front of you. You know. Huh? I, I do now. Okay. Can you kind of like let me know what's going on when he said, we played the truth for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating or drinking and they say he had a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton, a wine bibber, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Can you uh, explain that to me? Yeah, I can, Jose. I can. Thank you very much. Um, This is Jesus' response to uh, the people always calling out, you know, claiming to want the Christ, the Messiah, and here he is standing before them, and Um, they're rejecting him. And so this is Jesus lamenting, really. Uh, He says, uh, I'll go up one verse, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. So this is the the refrain from the children. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And then he uses John's example and then his own. What he's saying is, look, you're calling out for the Christ. You're calling out to God. But it turns out that you're just like children sitting in the marketplaces and, look, we did everything that you want. We sent him to you. I am he. So I played the flute, but you didn't dance. You didn't want to participate. I told you how bad things are going to be and you didn't mourn. We've answered your prayers. We fulfilled all of the requests of your heart. 
And because you didn't like my message, you reject me. You know, Jose, one of the things that, that, one of the things that um, has really been in my heart, and we're only in Luke chapter 4 on Sunday mornings, but, but as we're beginning through this, is how near Jesus was to people. And yet they didn't reject him. He was the answer to their prayers, their lifetimes filled with prayers. He was the answer. He played the song, but they wouldn't dance. He flipped the switch. He warned them, but they didn't mourn. And that's the reference that he's making here. This generation of people is like a bunch of children who want to play. They want to dance. I played the flute, but she didn't. So what he's doing is saying, look, here I am in your midst. The very one that you prayed for, the very one that you called out to. And yet you want nothing to do with me. In our study yesterday, Jose, Jesus went back to his hometown. And in spite of the miracles that he did, they wouldn't believe. In spite of all the things they'd heard that he'd done in other places, they wouldn't believe. And Jesus didn't do miracles in his hometown. He was so close to them. They close to him. And it had no value for them. And that's unfortunately what's happening in the church. Jesus is still singing, playing the flute, but we're not dancing. We're not mourning over our condition as we should, embracing him. Jose, thanks. I hope that helps. Well, we've got the first day out of the week. Remember, ladies, the Sweet Summer Devotion, Vicki Miller, tonight at 7 o'clock. I promise you'll be blessed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.